Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, we need to try something. Uh, he is risen. Yes. All right. We can still say that even the week after Easter, right? Because the reality, it is true. Jesus has risen from the grave. He is alive. He is ruling and reigning. And so we get an opportunity to worship him as we've been doing through song uh, by gathering here this morning. So thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. It is my absolute privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. My name is Jamie. And if you're new to Crosspoint, we're just so glad that, that you're here. We'd love the opportunity to connect with you after the service, be out in the connections area, out in the lobby, uh, help you answer any questions that you might have. And uh, this morning, we begin a brand new sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. It's part of the wisdom literature that's called in uh, the scriptures in the Old Testament. And so we'll turn there in just a moment. But as we get into this book, and you read there up on the screen a moment ago, there's some verses, some references to this ancient book. What does it have to teach us today in our particular context in 2019 in Central Florida? Like, what does it actually look like. And one of the things that got me thinking is uh, I want to call your attention back to uh, an illustration I used a few weeks ago. All right. I don't, uh, you know, you don't have to have remembered it. All right. I'll feel better if you did, but uh, just go with me for a moment. All right. Several weeks ago, we were in the book of Acts. We were looking at the idea of like having a courageous witness and the courage that's needed. And I told you the story of a guy uh, who stars in this documentary um, called Free Solo. All right. A guy named Alex Honnold. And his story is this, that not only does he like to climb some of the most difficult things in the world, he does it without any sort of rope, harness, he doesn't have any safety mechanisms, and his goal, his, his like lifelong aspiration and dream was to go to El Capitan, all right, so this 3,000 foot kind of granite wall, like to climb that without any sort of harness, no rope, nobody, no one on belay, none of that, that stuff happening, all right? And so you see a little picture there of him, and he made it all the way there. And so I become sort of intrigued by this guy and read a number of articles, uh, interviews, and, and such. And one of the things I came across, though, and I think helps get at the heart of this book of Ecclesiastes, and though I'm, you know, I know for a fact, none of you, including myself, have done what Alex ha have done. We all do have aspirations. We have dreams. We have things. And sometimes we even achieve what we set out to do. But we have to wonder, like, does it actually satisfy? And there's a particular interview that he gave. And look at these words. And I believe they get at the heart of what the book of Ecclesiastes is going to help us wrestle with and to help address and, uh, and to, to dive into so that we actually can find life. And so Alex said these words. He describes himself this way. He says, because I think I gravitate towards being a somewhat depressed person. I'm sort of just flat. And I feel like I don't have any of the highs. I go... I go from level to slightly below level to back. He says, it's all pretty flat. He says, sometimes you just feel useless, you know. But in some ways, I embrace that as part of the process because you kind of have to feel like a worthless piece of poop, he says, in order to get motivated enough to go do something that makes you feel less useless. But then ultimately, that still doesn't make you feel any less useless. So you just have to keep doing more. If there was ever a summation of the book of Ecclesiastes, it is that. It taps into this heart condition that not only does Alex have, but I have and you have. And though our goals and aspirations have looked different, the reality is even if we get what we set out to accomplish, 
it leaves us just feeling like, okay, well, now what? And for him, think about it. Like, what else is there to do? He has climbed the greatest thing ever, all right? Like, there literally isn't anything else that he can go and do. And so he's just sort of like, well, how do you prove yourself? How do you, how do you continue to go on in this world? And so we're going to look at the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. I'd like to keep you guessing, so I did not put a page number on the screen. You see the question mark that's there. Uh, my fault on that. If you're using one of the paperback Bibles, it's page 616. So you can grab one of those. You can also always go to cpwp.life and go to the message notes, all right? It'll be the second card as you swipe over and the text will be listed there. So I want to dive into this book and we'll talk about who wrote it and what some of the themes are. It's kind of an introduction this morning. And we're going to be journeying through this book um, from now, basically uh, through the, the summer months as well, trying to do a deep dive into this because I think it speaks very much to our cultural moment. And it's something that we have to grapple with. All right, and so Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll look at the first 11 verses. And as I read God's word, would you go ahead and stand if you're able to? Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says this, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any rem remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we get into this, all right, you're reading that, you're like, all right, first of all, this dude sounds like he just needs a hug, right? Uh, it's like, wow. I mean, it, it doesn't, there's like, it's very bleak, it's very depressing, that it's just weariness and toil and striving and vanity, or sometimes translations, meaningless, all right, and we're going to talk about all that. Like, why in the world is this, like, even in the Bible, is this meant to just sort of bum you out, right? Uh, Philip Ryken in his commentary says, Ecclesiastes comes off as the only book ever to be written on a Monday morning, right? Uh, only book in the Bible to be written on a Monday morning. It's like, wait, where are we? Like, what in the world is happening? But if we're going to understand this, one of the things we just got to look at here, like any book, is ask, okay, well, who's the author, all right? Um, and what, what do we know about the, the author, the voice in this particular book? And so there's a couple things that you'll find with Ecclesiastes. And we'll post some other resources online this week, some helpful uh, summary kind of introduction to the book. But just know this, that uh, we know the, the author is anonymous, all right? We don't know who it is, um, but we're introduced at the very beginning. It says, the words of the preacher. And so you have this author who's compiled um, this sort of collection of teachings of a particular preacher or, or teacher, this one who gathers people, all right? And it says here about this preacher, it says what we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes is the words of the preacher, some translations will say teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
And so down through the ages, uh, it's historically thought that this is a reference then to Solomon, who certainly fits the bill, all right, Um, that he was the son of David, he was king in Jerusalem, and things that we'll learn throughout the book about the preacher, the one who, who had accumulated great wealth, who didn't lack for any sort of experience, anything that his heart desired, he was able to go and acquire, possessed all kinds of wisdom. It seems to match up with the description of King Solomon, all right? And so there's lots of people that believe that, that that's true. Um, there's some debate as to whether or not, like, was it actually Solomon or there's a literary device that sometimes authors would use is they would, they would grab a hold of a well-known historic figure and sort of write, kind of representing what their thoughts would be. And listen, you're gonna find different people that will debate some of the merits of that. Big picture, I don't know that it ultimately matters, all right? So I probably will land and make reference to this being Solomon, all right? But I understand that there's different views of that but somewhere there's this person who wrote this under the inspiration of God and they talk about this well, somebody who was well known, this preacher, this teacher, and what were their experiences? What were the things that they had endured, all right? And so we're gonna learn from this particular person and then at the very conclusion of the book, we have the author speaking back into it and kind of helping to summarize, okay, what are the things that we've been hearing? What, how do we make sense of this? But we don't have to wait till the end of July to make sense of the book, right? Because as we journey through this, it's like, man, we're just going to be like, just expect depression, a melancholy feeling from now until through the summer months, all right? And then we'll tie it all up at, at the end. No, the reality is that perspective and what we see in this book does actually point us to hope. I do believe that what is happening here is meant to point us to the reality of Jesus because the story of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. And yet... There is a very unique perspective that this book gives. And so look with me again at verse 2 of this. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So this particular preacher or teacher has a perspective on the world that he's sharing. He's not hiding it. He's not holding back. He's like, here's what I need you to know. He says, vanity of vanities. It says, you know, all is vanity. Maybe a translation that you've read before says it's meaningless, all right? So meaningless, meaningless, all right? It's all meaningless. You're like, man, this is like some, this is a bit despairing, right? Like, what is going on? Guy needs to get out, maybe see the sun a little bit, right? It's like, whoa, man. And yet, the perspective that he brings is needed. It's here under the inspiration of God. Like, God has put this here, not only for people to read several thousand years ago, but for you and I as we are gathered here in this gymnasium in Winter Park, Florida, to wrestle with this perspective, to believe that truth is being spoken here. And so we got to ask ourselves this question, is it all meaningless? Is it all this sort of vanity? Like, what is actually going on? And I think there's a way that sometimes people want to read this and say, well, he's simply just speaking of kind of the secular world as vanity. But for the believer, like we don't wrestle with any of that because we know Jesus now. And so everything is good. But I don't believe that that accurately gets at what this book is talking about. Because it's written from the perspective of one who is a believer. That there is a struggle that is very real. So if you felt that tension, maybe you became a Christian and you were kind of told a version of it that everything, all your questions, doubts, frustrations, it's all going to go away. Like those secular pagans, they're going to still have a rough life, but you, everything's going to go great. But we realize life is far more complex than that. That's what we want to wrestle through in this, but this is what Ecclesiastes is going to help showcase for us. Like how do we make sense of this complex world that you and I inhabit? 
Yes, for those that don't believe what we might believe as followers of Jesus, but also for those of us that are followers of Jesus. Sometimes things in life just don't seem to make sense, and it feels meaningless, or it feels like vanity. And so is it all meaningless? And Zach Eswine, one of the books I'll put before you, he wrote a book called Recovering Eden. I think it's a helpful summary if you're looking for something to kind of pick up to help in your, your journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. And he began to comment on this and said, listen, like anytime somebody makes though a statement, like even if somebody says, you know, there's no such thing as absolute truth. What have they just done? They've declared an absolute truth. They've declared a truth, right? Or if somebody says there's no meaning in life, it's like, well, you're trying to say something meaningful. And so he comments on this. He says the only way for a human being to disregard truth and meaning is actually to appeal to both. To speak against them, we must actually uphold them. So when the preacher opens his book by saying that everything is meaningless, it will help us to remember that he makes a statement that is actually quite full of meaning. And when he declares that all is vanity, he presumes to have stated a truth that actually is not in vain. So if it's not in vain, again, what are we supposed to learn? And so this word that's translated as vanity or sometimes as meaningless, all right, is this Hebrew word that gets pronounced as this hevel. And the imagery here, and I think this is helpful to keep in mind as we journey through the book, is you imagine like lighting a match and, and blowing out. And for a moment, right, there's, that, there's the smoke that, that's there, all right? But it goes away quickly. If you try and grasp it, all right, like grasping at the air, um, you're not able to do it. You can't capture that, all right? Nobody goes on vacation and travels to different parts of the world and brings little jars and fills them with air and like, oh, yes, you know, I was, I was in the Bahamas. Here's the air that, that I captured. Or at least I don't think people do that, right? Like, because the reality is you can't capture it. So it's this idea of something that's fleeting. It's this mist or it's like this smoke. And the moment you try and grab for it, it kind of slips through your fingers. So this image of smoke or like a, a mist that's kind of filling or this fog over a, a valley. And it's this imagery that communicates a couple of things, all right? We could probably press it even further, but just at a very basic level that it's short. It communicates that if all of life is this vapor or this mist or if it kind of goes up in smoke, it's this idea of like it, it dissipates quickly. Life is short and it's also elusive as we might try and reach for something man doesn't it feel that way like even the things that we've pursued and even if we get some of the things that we set out to accomplish at the end of the day we find our heart just sort of like well was that it like Anna, Alex Honnold right makes it all the way to the top there and it's just like I just have to keep trying to prove myself and so the very nature of life that the preacher here wants us to wrestle with, to grapple with, is that it's short and that it's elusive. And we have to let the weightiness of this sink in. Like I do think that there's hope to be found, but I think we have to journey through some of this darkness, some of the reality here so that we might actually appreciate all it is that Christ has come to offer us. That if we just skip ahead and be like, okay, but I don't wanna deal with that, I think we would actually be missing out. And so what he begins to do then is to describe sort of the problem or like the predicament that we actually find ourselves in. So his perspective is like, it's all vanity. It's this vapor, it's this mist. He's like, I believe this to, to be true. And I think deep down, every one of us, if we were honest, would say, yeah, I've experienced some of this. That you bring in things this morning, all right? Maybe you're not in full-blown existential crisis, but you've had some of those moments, right? And you're just like, I don't know what any of the meaning is, any of the purpose. What am I supposed to do with this time that's been given to me? And as you talk with people that 
you know, as the older we get, the, the more I think we begin to express, like, man, it seems to be going by very, very quickly. And as a young kid, I always thought, well, that's crazy. It, t- it takes forever, right? I mean, for Christmas to roll around or for your birthday to, to roll around or to, to be old enough to drive or to be able, old enough to do certain things. And now it's just humming along at this fast pace, right? It's just the reality of how life is. And so he begins to describe, look at back then, we'll look at verses 3 to 11, then where we find ourselves. And he begins to describe the world that we live in. What is this vanity like? What is this mist or this vapor like? And it begins by asking then a question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 3 says that. The preacher wants to know, like, what's the point? We toil, we labor. Like, will there be anything actually to show for what we've, what we've done? Like, we all want to know what we're here for, right? We want to know the purpose. Like, if I told you, hey, um, at 4 o'clock this afternoon, I need you to, uh, you know, meet me at the corner of Park Avenue and Morse, all right? You might, okay. And the very next question you would probably ask or should ask is like, why? Like, what, what for? And if I don't tell you, you're like, wait, why would I go and be there at that particular time? Like, you need to know, even for something as basic as that, like, what for? And so we want to know, like, what is this life for? And so the preacher is wrestling through. He's inviting us to wrestle through, like, what do we actually gain by all the toil the labors, the efforts. Think of everything that you give time and energy to. Like, what do we actually have to show for it? All this toiling that's under the sun. And that phrase, just to introduce you to it, will come up over and over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. This perspective of, like, life under the sun. A way to showcase for us, like, what does life look like when we miss what God would actually have for us? So in this world, for both the Christian and the non-Christian, though there's this world sort of under the sun, and we're asking, like, what will it result in? What's it for? Will we have anything to showcase? I don't know if you remember the, this story. It was one of those, like, moments, and I've, I've since done some research hoping that it had a happy ending, and I couldn't find it, that about 10 years ago there was a woman uh, in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and she decided to do a very, very nice, generous thing for her elderly mother who was unable to kind of care for herself in certain ways, and she had slept on an old, ratty, beat-down mattress for years. And so while she happened to be out one time, the younger, the daughter said, I've got a great surprise for mom. And so she arranged for a new mattress that she purchased to be delivered to the home. They set it up. And as this place did, they also took it out to, to the trash, right? They put it by, by the road, all right? And so the mother comes home. Maybe, she, I don't know if she was on a trip or whatnot. And she sees what has been done. And she has this sort of look of horror on her face. And the daughter's like, what, what? Why were you so attached to the old mattress? And she's realized in that moment that she'd just become bankrupt because she didn't trust the banking system. And so for years, she'd been storing away her life savings and had close to a million dollars stuffed in the lining of the mattress. It was put out by the road. The trash, the, 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 the garbage truck showed up. They took it to the trash heap, all right? Literally for days, they were trying to find the, this mattress. I've since Googled it. If you find that if there's a happy ending, I'd love to know. But as far as I know, this thing was put in the trash never to be found again. Doesn't life feel like that sometimes? I mean, that's a pretty extreme story, but it's like all this toil, the mother who had labored and diligently stocked it away, saved away, and then like that, it was gone. 
Life is short. It's elusive. It's complex. It doesn't necessarily make sense. You're like, I thought I was doing the right thing. Aren't there Proverbs about saving up? All right? And so Proverbs, even that book, is another part of the wisdom literature. Sometimes puts these things out there. So I'm like, oh, that would be great. And Ecclesiastes comes along and says, yes, but let me nuance it. There's always sort of an exception clause. There's always ways that it doesn't quite work out the way that we think that it's going to. And what do we do with that? And we're called to wrestle with it. And so you think about this. Like, what will we gain? Will it all end up in the trash heap? Will we have saved for certain things only to find that at the end of the day it went to somebody else and they didn't handle it well? Whatever it looks like. There's this fleeting nature. And there's also this repetitive nature. Look at the language here. Beginning in verse 4, it says, A generation goes and a generation comes. One generation dies off, another generation shows up, but it's only a pattern to be repeated. But the earth remains forever. Which is interesting, isn't it? Verse 11 will talk about this as well, so we'll get into that more in a few moments. But there's this reality that your generation, my generation, whatever generation you're in, right, it's here for a while goes it's going and it's going to die off and another generation is going to come the earth is going to remain here forever meaning like it's going to outlive you it's going to outlive me all right that the the same moon and the, the sun that we've been looking at all right has been there for thousands of years and different generations have looked at it and then they have come and they have they have gone they have hit their expiration date and now there's other generations that will show up but there's this pattern that repeats itself And so the preacher looks out and says it's not just amongst the people. He even looks at creation. And rather than having creation stir him and his affections for God, he also looks at it and describes just sort of the weariness of it all. And so he says the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. There's a little footnote there and it says or returns panting. It's as if the sun is even feeling the fatigue. It, It rises and it sets and on and on. It goes and it hastens to the place. It's fatigued. It pants to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south. It goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea. But the sea is not full. They keep running. They keep pouring in to the oceans. And yet, it never fills up. He's describing life under the sun. That these things continue to happen and he would tell us as he continues as well it says all things in verse 8 are full of weariness and rather than just looking out at the creation even just looks at our own lives and says a man cannot utter it and so we we speak words we struggle to, to speak certain words all right he said there's a vanity to all of this the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing like we feel the reality of this don't we You can take in tons and tons of images. You can read lots of books. You can watch lots of movies. You can go watch some new movie that came out this weekend that people are freaking out about, right? Um, I know the end to end game. Want me to tell you? I'm just kidding. I don't, all right? So, um, but there's all these things. You can just take it in. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but it never fills us up. You can hear, you can listen, all right? You can be trying to figure out things in this world. You can download all the podcasts you can possibly listen to, and yet it continues there's this voice like okay but are you really filled up 
So maybe a way to think about it is this, is sort of this merry-go-round or this, you know, this carousel of sorts. Like, and we're just stuck on repeat. Around and around and around we go. And as verse 8 speaks of, we're just tired. Like there's a weariness, not just only for the creation. Romans 8, 20 would speak of this. In fact, it uses the same uh, word here of, of hevel. It's this idea that all of creation is groaning, all right? That there's this, this aching that the creation feels, a weariness to it all. But it's not just out there like it's in here. It's in your heart and it's in my heart. Not just our, our physical bodies, although that, that certainly is included. But it just feels like we're on this carousel. We're on this merry-go-round and around and around we go. And the craziest thing is, is we sometimes claim we're making progress. And we look down our noses maybe at the other generations, the one that was before us or the one that's coming up behind us, all right? And we declare, no, we've gotten it figured out. You guys messed up or you guys don't know what you're doing. And we go around and around on this loop declaring that we're making progress. We're stuck on this sort of treadmill, whatever imagery you want to use there, and we just find ourselves exhausted. And then the next generation comes up, and it's their turn, and around and around and around they go, and they declare the progress that they're making, but it's just like listening to a song on repeat. And I don't care if you think it's the greatest song ever, if you could only listen to one song over and over and over again, you would eventually come to hate that song, wouldn't you? Like you would just wear that thing out. It's like, oh, can we just have something else, some variety? And the writer is wrestling through this, and he's just like, this is the life that we live. Just on and on it goes. And what it does sometimes, though, I think maybe as a coping mechanism, we're sort of tricked into, we take this posture of like, I'm just going to pretend if I had more that I actually can make progress. I get that maybe other generations have struggled or the ones coming up, like maybe they won't get it figured out, but I can dial in, I can figure it out. David Gibson in his book, I'm called Living Life Backwards, uh, uh, kind of this exposition on the book of Ecclesiastes says this. Look at this, this quote from him and kind of unpacking for us this tendency towards pretending. He says, let's pretend, though, that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or emigrate to the sun, we won't experience the humdrum tedium and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship to start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. He says, let's pretend that if we got through this week's pile of washing and dirty diapers and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. Now, if you've got a way to figure that out, if you've been able to achieve that, like I want to hear from you, right? But I believe what the preacher is communicating here in these words that God has for us this morning is this idea of like, we can pretend all we want, but we will never arrive. We'll never be able to get the rest that we're created for unless we begin to view this life under the sun in a different way. Because he tells us there's nothing new under the sun. 
And that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, new inventions, all right? That doesn't, that's not some sort of reference to like, oh, yeah, like actually, you know, Solomon and the author of this, he, he wrote these things on his iPad, all right? Like those weren't around at, at the time. So it's not that there's nothing ever new, so to speak, that shows up. But is it lasting? Is it really going to make a difference? The, the, the thing about it is we're always creating things, all right? And people will continue to create things. But it's still kind of in the same stream, the same general categories. There really is nothing new. And we keep looking for it. And then we get sucked into it. I know I get sucked into just the novelty. Like, what's that new shiny object? As I've alluded to, I've told you this before. It's why I can't go to Costco or Sam's without literally walking almost every single aisle. Because there might be something new. And it might be the missing thing that my life needs in this moment. All right? And so Heather will be like, she literally, this happened yesterday. She was, or Friday, I think it was. She was at, like she'd already paid for everything. Was through the checkout line. Where, where are you? I'm like, I got a few more aisles to go through, right? Um, just sermon prep, that's what it was. But there's something in us that's like, oh, but maybe there's something new and shiny and interesting. It's like, no, there really is nothing new under the sun. And then verse 11, which is alluded to before in speaking of the generation, says there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after and you might even notice again that there's a footnote here that it can be read. There is no remembrance of former people, nor will there be any remembrance of later people yet to be among those who come after. That's not just this generic thing. It's like, no, there will be no remembrance of former people. And then the people that will come on the scene at one point, at some point, they too won't be remembered. It's like he's writing this and it seems like, man, this is super depressing, right? And if we just stopped here, um, it would be very depressing. All right, well, benediction, let, let's go. Let's sing some kind of somber, you know, let's, let's dial in some like really just kind of, you know, melancholy music for a moment. And we'll just kind of trudge out of here. But there's something in this that God wants us to see, to wrestle with, to know like, hey, You've been given a certain time and place, and what are you doing with the days that you've been given? It's sort of the, the imagery here of going and you find yourself like walking around a cemetery. In some ways, that can be a helpful exercise to do. You begin to see, wow, person after person after person, they walked this earth, they made sandwiches, they made dinner, they worked their job, they loved people. And eventually, though, it all came to an end. And on the one hand, that can really bum us out. At the other hand, it can also remind us, though, that there's a fleeting nature of things, and we are created for something eternal. And so the preacher here is driving at this idea of, like, listen, it's all going to come to an end at some point. The reality is, as somber as this is, all right, we're, uh, we're about 30 minutes into this sermon. You're 30 minutes closer to your death than when I started this sermon. You're like, yes, I feel that, all right? Um, it's just the reality. And we don't want to think about these things, do we? And yet, I think we're so often misguided, not just the people out there, but us as the church because we don't contemplate these things enough. So he's telling us, you might get your little, you know, few feet of dirt to have the body put into. You might even get a nice stone that's there with your, with your name on it and all of that, all right? 
And there'll be some people for a while that will go and they will look at that and they will remember you. But then another generation will pass and another generation will pass. The reality is this, almost every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth isn't remembered anymore. There are a few people, but even the people that we remember, we think are a big deal, just give it enough time and it'll fade from memory. And so what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with this sort of honest description of the way the world is? And so here's how I want to end as a bit of introduction to the overall book, though. That the writer, that remember, these are God's words to us this morning. That there is a purpose that God is showcasing for us. Like there's a plan, there's intentionality, there are things that, that God is doing through this particular book. I love the words of Zach Eswine again in Recovering Eden. He says this, if there is no escape from what is under the sun, then rescue will have to come from somewhere else. The time will come in which God will personally squint and sweat beneath the sun's light and heat. He will enter the gainless world, endure its vanity, and feel the pain of it. I love that we are starting Ecclesiastes right on the heels of Good Friday and of Easter. Because Good Friday and Easter tell the story of God looking out over this world, this life under the sun, and the willingness for the God-man Jesus, for the Son of God to enter into our reality, to break into this reality, to be born of a virgin, to be born in these humble, humble circumstances, to live in obscurity for 30-some years before his public ministry, to never have sinned, to never have rebelled, to live a perfect, sinless life, a life that you were called to live and I was called to live, but we've failed miserably. We've got sucked into life under the sun thinking we can find meaning, we can find purpose all on our own. Just let us do our thing. Like our original parents reaching out for the fruit and saying, I want to be God, I want to do it. And Good Friday tells us the story of God himself being willing to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, so that you and I could actually have life. And then three days later, though, the tomb was empty, that there's this resurrection, that there's this new creation. And that longing that we have for something new finds itself in the empty tomb, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so think about this, the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd say like no other really, can point us to the reality of, of our need as we try and navigate this world, as we will see the preacher talk of all the things that he accomplished, all the things that he acquired, all the things, all right, and they're not necessarily even bad things. But when they become ultimate, when we get so fixated on whatever it happens to be, just pretending, if I had this, then I'll be making progress. And he's showcasing for us, no, 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 no. Your life is going to come to an end. And what will you have to show for it? If you've made it all about life under the sun, we have to see that there was one that broke into this world to usher in, to get us back to the new creation. I love this. I just want to read a few verses to close with and encourage your heart in this, that God wasn't content to leave this world as it is, that he was willing to send his son, that he promised way back in Genesis 3.15 that he would send one one day that would set everything right, that would get us back, that would renew the creation, both at a personal level and at a cosmic level. And so Romans 5.6 says this, while we were still weak, when we couldn't figure it out, when we were weary and exhausted from pursuing all the things under the sun, thinking that that thing would satisfy, at the right time, what? Christ died for the ungodly. 
The ungodly is not your coworker or your neighbor, or that person you can't stand. The ungodly is you, and the ungodly is me. And at just the right time, the God of the universe broke into this reality, took on flesh and blood, and died in your place and in my place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 then speaks of this at a personal level. Because this is true for those of us that have trusted in what we celebrated last week of Good Friday and of Easter, that we're resurrection people. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what was taking place on the cross. That all of our sin, our rebellion, our pursuit of all the things under the sun, thinking that will satisfy, thinking if I just have more of this, that deserved to be punished. That separates us from God. And God took that upon us. Like Jesus himself said, I will be separated from the Father. I will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As all of our sin was put on him. So that we might actually get the righteousness of God. And then that longing, just a few verses before this, it tells us. That longing that you and I have for the new. That's a good thing. Pay attention to that. But don't find yourself satisfied with the trinkets that are in aisle 14 at Costco, right? Like find your identity, find your deep satisfaction in the fact that you've been made new, that there's been this new birth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Think about it for a moment. Don't miss that invitation. Behold, the new has come. I know you've got sin and failures and shortcomings and weaknesses and weariness in your life, and I've got it in my life for sure. And yet what I need to do is to stop and actually say, can I just behold for a moment? Like God has made me new. The God of the universe was willing to send his son to die for me. The God of the universe rose again, conquering Satan, sin, and death. So there could be actually something new. Not a new in the name of like trivial or some trinket that's fleeting is just going to burn up or end up in the trash heap at some point. But something truly new that lasts. You're a new creation. Are you beholding that? I need to behold that far more than I do. I don't know if it was just Easter, sort of just like you kind of work through the high of that, all, all of that, and then just this week, like I couldn't shake just sort of this melancholy sort of funk, and it's like, cool, let's dive into Ecclesiastes. Maybe that contributed some, I don't know, all right? But the reality is my heart needs to behold more. Behold, the new has come. And it's not just at a personal level. The book of Revelation speaks of this, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, there's that word again. So not only behold that you've been made new, but behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Not just you and your personal relationship with Jesus, as important as that is. I'm literally renewing everything. There's nothing that's outside of my, my scope or purview. I am gonna make all things new. I'm gonna get things back to how I originally intended them to be, and nothing can stop me. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I love that. It's like, hey, behold. Hey, are you really paying attention? Get your pen and paper out. Write this down. It's sort of that image, right? Like dial in, pay attention. And he said to me, it is done. So the God of the universe says, it's done. And then he's like, in case you doubt that I can make that declaration, he says, all right, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It's done. It's finished. 
I'm going to make this happen. Right now we live in this tension of still life under the sun a bit, but you can know the newness of the new creation and you can trust and believe and rest in the fact that God is one day gonna renew all things. And the invitation is always one of God's grace. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. If your view of all of this, how do I get in on this newness? How do I move away from just the angst and the depression and all that that I feel in life under the sun? Like, what do I have to do to earn that? What, what can I give you, Lord? You literally can't give him anything. There's no payment that you can be made. Can be made. You simply come to him with hands open and be like, I got nothing to offer. My only contribution to this whole thing is my sin, my pursuit of things under the sun, thinking it'll satisfy. I repent of that. I'm sorry for that. My sin put you on the cross. Thank you that you were willing to go and do that. Thank you that you've made me a new creation. I gotta behold that. And in this tension that we feel, I trust that one day Jesus is gonna split the sky. He's gonna come back. He's gonna take up his dwelling with us. And he's gonna restore everything under the sun. He's not gonna burn it up. It's going to renew it. It's going to restore it. And we, because of the truth of what Easter is, we get to be about that work even now. Not in its ultimate sense, but we get to know that our lives are full of meaning and of purpose. And the work that you do and the relationships that you have and the investments that you make, all of these things can matter when they are seen through the right lens, not as ultimate things, but as good gifts that the Lord has given, things to steward well. And so the weariness, I want you to hear this. I'll close with these verses. This is the invitation that the book of Ecclesiastes gives to us. The invitation it points us to is from the Lord Jesus himself, who in Matthew chapter 11 says this. Speaking to a world, to a culture that is worn out, it's exhausted, continuing like always striving, running at this frenetic pace on the merry-go-round, thinking we're making progress. And Jesus is like, hey, let me just invite you to rest. Come to me. He invites. He doesn't say, come to me, those of you that have got it figured out, or come to me, certain types of people, or come to me if you've got this sort of education, or if you've really been keeping up with your Bible reading, or if you've had a good prayer life. Okay, well, you're welcome to come, but the rest of you clean up your act. No, no, no. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. Is that you? I know it's me. I'm sure it's you. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This imagery of this, this beam across the shoulders, as animals would be tied together for this work that they would need to do, and Jesus is saying, it actually, with me though, it's not a burden. My yoke is actually easy. And the reason that it's easy is because he took on the full weight, the full burden of life under the sun. That he entered into it, that he died for it, that he rose again. And now we are part of this new creation story. And Ecclesiastes helps point us to that reality. And so you can read it and be bummed out and be like, oh yeah, this man, this guy really, really, you know, he really gets it. And you should see that but it's also meant to point us and drive us to the ultimate truth that is Jesus is restoring all things and we're invited into this rest. Are you tired? Stop striving and take up the invitation from Jesus to come and abide and to behold him in his glory. And so for a few moments here, let's practice that. 
You're meant to carry this on out from this place. This isn't just for here at a church gathering, but, but part of this gathering is like, let's, let's dial into that. Let's practice these things for a moment. So I wanna, I'll close in prayer, but I'm gonna give you a couple moments. Spend some time repenting. What have you been pursuing this life under the sun? Confess those things to the Lord. And I want to invite you to rest in the finished work of Jesus, who on the cross declared it is finished, who says it is as good as done. I am going to put everything right. Behold the fact that you are a new creation. That's how God the Father sees you. Spotless, shining, new. He's rejoicing over you with loud singing. See that. And then let's rejoice together. We're going to rejoice through giving this morning. If you're a guest, don't feel any obligation to give. We're going to rejoice through singing together. We're going to rejoice. Part of it, even rejoicing and resting, is, is praying together. There'll be leaders back in the back corners of the gym. If you need prayer, would you go and seek out members of our prayer team? It's an opportunity for us to rejoice. Do we have access to the God of the universe? We're going to rejoice in communion. We'll explain that more in just a moment. But let me pray and just give you a few moments to repent, to rest, and then we'll rejoice together. Father, thank you that in your kindness and your grace toward us, that you would give us a very honest and at times unsettling book like the book of Ecclesiastes. But thank you that we know how it fits within an overall story of how you're at work in the world and what you have been up to to make all things new and to make us new creations. And so God, I pray that we would behold that, that we would be in awe of that, that we would celebrate that. I would pray for any this morning, God, who are still just pursuing the things kind of under the sun, have never trusted in you, that today would be the day that they go from death to life, when they, they go from exhaustion to a true rest as they find their identity in you. And yet, God, I confess that I'm somebody who's a follower of you, and yet I'm still exhausted and tired and pursuing things that were never meant to satisfy. So repent of that. And God, I pray that we as your people would repent of those things and that we would find the lasting rest in the finished work of Jesus. And so I ask that not only this morning, but in these upcoming weeks, would you use this book to challenge us, to disrupt us, to in helpful, healthy ways throw us off balance and then remind us again and again of the truth that we need. That we need the gospel. That we need to remember who we are in you. May we rejoice in that. And so as we rejoice in that, God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.